asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're talking about becoming a financial samurai with Sam Dogan. Right, Sam Dogan. He is the founder of Financial Samurai, which you probably have heard of, uh, and he is joining us today. Sam was one of the pioneers of Fire back when he started writing at Financial Samurai over ten years ago. He retired at age thirty-four after a career at Goldman Sachs, but then actually he came out of retirement because retired life was a little too boring for him. Uh, but he has written over twenty-one hundred articles at his site. And now his new book, Buy This, Not That, it's about to be released very soon, which is an excellent guide on how you can optimize your, your money to build wealth and, and live life on your own terms. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about financial independence, about maximizing your earning potential, engineering a layoff. That's something that he, uh, that we're going to get to. Uh, we're excited to talk about all of that and more today. And by the way, we're going to give away several copies of Sam's book by this, not that. Uh, and so stick around to the end of the episode to learn how you can enter to win one of those copies. But Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me. Sam, we're pumped to talk to you, man. And uh, the first question we ask everyone out of the gate is what their craft beer equivalent is. And that's because Matt and I love craft beer. We spend a lot of money on it while we're trying to be good with our money, <laughs> save and invest for the future. So yeah, do you have something like a craft beer equivalent in your life? Yeah, so craft beer equivalent would be chlorine 
tablets or mm. chlorine granules. You know what, okay. what that is for? It sounds like the opposite of a splurge. It sounds like <laughs> <laughs> I am very confused. I cannot wait to is hear that what, for your pool? Do you what have these pool? are all about. Yeah, there you go. So oh, okay. I get a bottle of chlorine granular tablets uh, once every three weeks maybe, and I dump them into my hot tub every other day to keep the water clear and clean. So that is the absolute best splurge I've ever spent. This was six years ago. I spent $15,000 to buy a hot tub, set up the level cement platform, set up the electronics, and then just go with it. So that is my splurge. How often are you using that hot tub? So I go about three times a week. And then since the pandemic started in 2020, I've been going about four or five times a week. And it's been a great outlet uh, for my son and I to bond uh, because the hot tub is actually at a rental property, but half of the rental property is open. And so it's kind of like our sanctuary, our escape Oh, so it's like, uh, okay, I see what you did here. This is an investment. <laughs> you, can't, you got to write off those expenses. Well, it's definitely there's, an investment. It's there's psychological nobody there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, that's important, man. Okay, yeah, so Joel, you're going to pull the trigger. Joel, I, Joel always talks about getting a hot tub. Or like, a pool. My kids like love to swim. Two years ago, you thought about getting one of the inflatable <laughs> hot tubs? Well, I tried on Black Friday. <laughs> Sam, there was one of those inflatable hot tubs on Walmart's site for like less than 200 bucks. But I literally oh. hopped on at 7 p.m. when it was supposed to go on sale. And it was sold out. It so. jerked the rug out from under. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was bummed. But maybe I need to like go all out and, and get one of those nice ones like Sam's got. You, yeah. you got to get out. You got to go big and get the hardwired hot tub with the 20 Jets. 240 Ooh. amp, whatever that is. I mean, it's okay. so worth it. Okay, uh, well, if I if I proceed, I'm going to reach out to you for <laughs> with some questions. So get you that Cadillac of, of hot tubs. That's right. Um, yeah. Sam, so you first started writing about financial independence, I, I feel like before it was even cool, uh, way back in the day. What is it that inspired you to pursue that, that lifestyle and to start documenting it all uh, way back in 2009? Yeah, so I started working at Goldman Sachs in 1999, and they required me to get into the office at... 5.30 in the morning. Ooh. And it wasn't just getting in at 5.30. I had to stay back beyond 7 p.m. every night to connect with Asia because the Asian markets were opening. And so I knew right then and there in 1999, after one month, I couldn't last, you know, for hopefully until I was age 40. Like beyond that, there was just no way to have a multi-decade career in finance. Mm. And or to so, have friends or family. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, it. you know, I gained weight. I got sciatica, you know. I was just always stressed. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to invest and save as much as possible the first month from work so that one day I could escape. And so in 2009, uh, July is when I started Financial Samurai because I had been putting it off since 2006 after I graduated from business school part-time. And July 2009 was the bottom of the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. I lost 35% of my net worth in six months. That's you know, that took 10 years to build. And I just felt like a dummy. And I felt, you know what, there's got to be a better way to get out of this. And writing was my catharsis. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, it was like partly catharsis, part documentation. And I get, I just, I'm curious too, seeing your net worth drop by something like 35%. Uh, other people uh, in like today's market might be feeling something like you were feeling back then. Yeah. They might have seen, you know, their their uh, their stock market holdings drop by 20, 25% if, if they're heavily exposed to crypto, potentially more. Um, yeah. So yeah, how would you how would you talk to pe- talk people through maybe an experience like this since you've kind of dealt with it firsthand and, and have recovered handsomely? Well, the important thing to do is learn from your experience. So investing is a long-term game. It's a psychological mind bender. 
the person who lasts the longest and is the most calm usually wins because over time, right, you see stocks go up 10% a year, real estate goes up unlevered about three to four and a half percent a year, just on average. So you know that over a 10, 20 year period, you're probably going to be fine. It's the people who wig out and just sell and just get out of things when things are crashing that generally end up regretting it over time. So the key right now, let's say in 2022, you're down huge, 20 to 50% on your investments, is to understand what your risk tolerance is. And it's a wake-up call. If you feel bad right now, horrible, that you're losing whatever you're losing, then it's probably because your risk exposure is too high and you have to adjust that downwards. So over the 2000.com bomb, the 2008-2009 financial crisis, I've been able to hone my net worth asset allocation to match my risk tolerance. And everybody's risk tolerance is different because everybody's goals and DNA are different, right? And so you've got to use this as an opportunity to figure out what your risk tolerance is and net worth asset allocate appropriately. Yeah. So Sam, you know, like your, your focus in the new book, it, it centers around spending. And you, you say that like most folks, they get told about the saving side of the equation, but that we're often lost when it comes to knowing how to actually spend our way to wealth. Can you explain to, to listeners what you mean by that? Right. So there's only so much you can save, uh, but the income side is unlimited. All the wealthiest people in the world didn't get super wealthy by saving their way to wealth, but by making more money, building more equity, building companies and businesses. So it's really going from a defensive approach, which I think should be a given, saving budgeting, to an offensive approach where you can get your vacuum, uh, money vacuum cleaner, and then just soak up as much money as possible in the world. Because truly, there's trillions and trillions of dollars for the taking. And it's a mindset you have to say, I too deserve to be rich. Why can't I sop up all this money as well? So it's really about thinking on the offense rather than the defense. Yeah. Well, you talk about the the root of inaction in in your book, and you say that like that part of the reason so many of us don't take action when it comes to investing is because we desire absolute certainty. So, uh, in in your mind, for folks who are like, I would love to invest, it just feels a little risky. How how can we overcome maybe that tendency that so many of us have towards inaction, towards really kind of standing pat? Right. So it's important to realize that the fear in your head is often worse than the reality. And the other point uh, to, to know is it's important to think in probabilities, not absolutes. So what do I mean by that? When you think in absolutes, you shortchange yourself. You think you need 100% certainty to go ask out that girl or boy. You need 100% certainty to apply for that job or bid on that house. Uh, before you proceed. And what a shame, because you will likely miss out on so many opportunities. So instead, I encourage you to think in probabilities using a 70-30 decision-making framework. And this decision-making framework can be used for investing, for having children, for doing a lot of tackling a lot of life's biggest dilemmas. And the framework is, says, if you believe there's a 70% probability or better that you will make the right choice, you go for it while having the humility in knowing that 30% of the time you're going to make the wrong choice, but that's okay because you're going to learn from that choice and make better decisions going forward. Right. I mean, I guess the problem there, though, is that it's difficult to determine when you are 
kind of <laughs> crossing that 70% threshold, right? Right. And so, so much of this, I, th- I mean, it kind of comes down to you as an individual to kind of weigh the risks to kind of right. f- determine to figure out on your own that like, okay, I, you know, this this feels like something that's 70-30. I think that's the pushback. I think a lot of folks might right. say that, well, I, I get that theoretically. <laughs> I get that as a principle. But in practice, I think that can be difficult, right? Right. So there's two ways to approach this. Um, one is by making calculations, making calculations for everything, whether it's from the NBA finals, who's going to win by how many games to who's going to win the dog show to how long that marriage is going to last to whether you're going to get into that incubator uh, for your startup and so forth. And what you do is you, before something happens, you make a prediction and then you write down why you think it's going to happen that way. And then sooner or later, you're going to find out the result. And then you do a postmortem and try to analyze why things didn't go the way it did or why it did go, but are you sure it went the way uh, it did because of those reasons you highlighted or because of something else? You don't want to be delusional in your thought. So this Mm -hmm. takes experience and practice, really intentional practice. And that's something that I learned on the trading floor working for a couple Wall Street firms for 13 years, you really need to make some probability estimates. The other way to get around this, to overcome your fear, is to listen and to read uh, from people who've been there before. And so that's the whole point behind Buy This, Not That, How to Spend Your Way to Wealth and Freedom. Not only is it a book about helping you achieve financial freedom in a risk-appropriate way, it also tackles some of life's biggest dilemmas. You know, things such as, should you marry for money or marry for love? Should you live in mm. an expensive city um, for the greater career potential or should you relocate to a lower cost area? Should you have kids later or younger? So all of these big dilemmas are approached using the 70-30 framework in my book. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that you said that people should go the Anna Nicole Smith route and always just marry someone who's really rich and really old <laughs> and that way you're set for life, right? I mean, That's what yeah. Sam did, actually. <laughs> exactly. And then, then you just leapfrog generations of uh, hard work and struggles. Exactly. And you're, you're good to go. It's so That's, simple. That's the real trick. Let other people do the compounding for you, and then you just meet them there at the end. Hit the easy exactly. button. Hit the easy button. Well, one, exactly. one of the things, too, you know, you're talking about the probabilities, and I thought that was a great, great framework. But it's also important probably to think about the potential negative consequences of something that you you could do. And for instance, when you're talking about asking somebody out on a date and like how bad is the negative potential consequence of being told no. Uh, And I had to override distinctly remember when I was, you know, in my early twenties before I met my lovely wife and I was like, so bad at asking girls out. And I was like, finally like, (laughs) what is the worst possible outcome? I'm going to feel like crap (laughs) for maybe 20 minutes. And then I'll get over it. And so it was one of those things where I just kind of started with reckless abandon to start asking people out on dates. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so that's another thing. Like when you think about the worst possible outcome of not investing, man, it is so severe that you better get started. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to something else, the, the, out, the, uh, the negative possibilities might be so infinitesimally small that you better just go ahead and do it. Yeah. Uh, a lot about financial independence is about having the courage to change in suboptimal situation. So one test to see if you are truly financially independent is to see if you can change, to take action to change a bad situation. If you feel you're financially independent, but you're still coming into work, getting oppressed by you know, a terrible boss and doing something you don't like, well, you're probably not financially independent yet. Well, on that note about financial independence, I mean, Sam, can you talk about like the evolution 
of the fire movement because I, you know like folks who saved a huge chunk of their income like they existed before you know the, yeah. the modern fire movement but I, I feel that like you kind of helped to bring it mainstream like what's your take on where the movement stands right now well it's really interesting so in 2009 um, when i helped kickstart the modern day fire movement the basic definition of fire is if you have enough passive income or passive investment income to cover your basic living expenses, then you're financially independent. So what I've noticed over time is that definition of financial independence has changed, where there's terms such as coast fire, barista fire, lean fire, and all sorts of fire. And what it yeah, is- The, the fire is, terminology has spread. <laughs> yeah, rapidly. I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting to watch. And what it is, is based off human psychology, because it really is hard to, accumulate enough capital to generate that passive income. It takes, you know, 10, 20, 25 years. And a lot of people just can't wait too long and they'll lose steam. So what has happened is instead of waiting that long, people have created these new terminologies to help fit where they are on their journey. Mm -hmm. Right. So, for example, if you say, let's say barista fire is basically working part-time where you know you get a job at Starbucks and they provide health care to help supplement your chill, chilled out life. Uh, Coast Fire is, is, a, is a fascinating one where it talks about having enough retirement income that if it compounds at the historical rate of return, you'll eventually be uh, living the good life in retirement. But that's just a defining what most people are doing right now is just saving for for retirement. So it's really a psychological uh, motivating tool to redefine what financial independence is for various people so they can continue saving and investing for the future. Right. I mean, do you see that as a good thing? Because I, I, I mean, I hear all these things and what it does to me is it, it makes it sound a little more inclusive, which in my mind, the more folks you can kind of get on the boat, right? Even yeah. though it's like, well, you're not you're not totally there yet, man. You're still working a job or you're, you're yeah. still clocking 30 hours a week and right. you don't even benefits. necessarily want to quit altogether. Right. right. Which and, and so like on one hand, I, I, I kind of see it as almost like a like a good thing because it gets folks on the boat. They're, right. they're thinking in that direction, even though they might have years or, or even maybe decades of, of, of part time work ahead of them. Yeah, I definitely think it's a good thing to be more inclusive uh, because, again, the journey is very long and sometimes can be very hard and it's easy to quit. I mean, how many of us try to go on diets and then we just quit after three months because we're like, screw that. Right. So the more inclusive it can be to help people go along on their journey, the better. It's just sometimes it can give it, get a little bit funny where there's another term called wi- Wi-Fi. So wife, <laughs> wife, financial independence. So in other words, okay. you know, so men, we men have really uh, fragile egos. And so when we <laughs> leave our jobs and we become stay at home fathers, a lot of men, it seems like are not willing to say that they are stay at home dads. Instead, mm. they'll say they retired early. And while they have you know, that, a, yep. a working wife making good money and providing for health care. So again, it's about That's so funny. I have not heard that Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's but, you know, I, 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 I was like, for me, it's like more power to you, whatever you want to do to you know, help your situation, whatever's best for your household. I think that's the yeah. most important thing. Absolutely. And, and however you can frame it, that means that you're going to be able to pursue it with the most vigor in a way that's sustainable for for your life, right? Um, right. All right. Sam, we've got more questions for you, man. We want to specifically talk more about FIRE. We want to talk about how real estate can factor into uh, the financial independence lifestyle. And then we also want to talk about debt. You've got kind of some interesting thoughts on that. So we'll get to those questions right after this. 
Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000-plus five-star reviews. It tastes amazing. It's creamy and smooth with just water, and it comes in five delicious flavors. You can choose from chocolate, vanilla, chai, matcha, and coconut acai. Kachava is offering How to Money listeners 10% off for a limited time. I've been using Kachava in breakfast smoothies in the morning recently. It's just so nice to pack in a bunch of nutrients early in the a.m. in a way that's satisfying and energizing. So if you want to optimize your breakfast, your workout shake, be sure to check out Kachava. Just go to Kachava dot com slash how to money that's spelled k-a-c-h-a-v-a and get 10 percent off your first order that's k-a-c-h-a-v-a dot com slash how to money and now a word from the show sponsors at betterment do you want your money to dream big do you want your money to be a total self-starter are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough don't worry betterment is here to help Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Spring cleaning is kind of an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it. Minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs. And it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All 
All right, we're, we are back from the break. We're talking with Sam Dogan about becoming a financial samurai. And Joel, I know you're excited to, to talk about real estate with Sam here in a oh, second. Yeah. But uh, before we, we move on, Sam, let's, let's talk about how you know that you've reached FI, uh, how, how you, know you, you know once you reach financial independence or achieve some sort of sense of financial freedom. Because we know you're not the biggest fan of the uh, coming up with 25 times your, your annual expenses. Yeah. How do you suggest that folks think about what they'll need to have saved up? in order to hit that five mark. Right. So the 25 times expenses is fine. It's based off the inverse of the 4% rule, which mm-hmm. was started in the 1990s, when you could get a risk-free return of 5 to 6% from a 10-year bond yield. So in other words, of course you can withdraw at a 4% rate because you were getting a risk-free return of 5 to 6%. But obviously, times have changed over the past 30 years, and so should we. In my mind, it's more important to base your financial independence number based on a multiple of your gross annual income, not your expenses. And why is that? Because when you base it off your expenses, there's a propensity to cheat, right? So let's say your expenses are $100,000 and you want to do 25 times to get to financial independence. So that's $2.5 million. But let's say you're just tired of it all and it's just you want to just get out quicker. So you just say, well, I'm going to do lower my expenses to $50,000 a year. So based on 25 times, you know, you only need to generate what 1.25 million. So with the multiple based on income, you can't cheat. And many of us who are pursuing this, you know, obviously by definition are younger, right? 20, 30s, 40. Mm-hmm. And if we base a multiple by income, as your income grows, as most people's income will grow over time, you have to force yourself to save and invest more. There's no cheating. And so the ultimate number that I've come up with is 20 times your annual gross income, which is a huge number. And I know some people will get very, very mad at that. But the idea is to change your mindset, uh, again, from defense to offense. And once you get to about 10 times your gross annual income, that's really when you feel like you're you're on a great path to financial independence. So it, it think, is a stratus. Do, do you think that number and kind of that mindset is because you're probably more in like the fat fire camp, talk about different fire terminology, uh, maybe because, yeah, you're you're um, less, <laughs> you're not looking forward to that barista fire lifestyle. That's not that's not your jam. So do you think that's maybe part of why you kind of come up with, with that methodology? It, it might be, but the good thing about multiples is that it works, whatever the absolute dollar amount is. And so, again, it's back to the philosophy of focusing on income and growth and less so much about budgeting and saving. Yeah. We should all be budgeting and saving, but this is like a standard operating procedure that should be a default setting. Really, you know, it's just changing that mindset to uh, a number based on income. And I think that's very consistent with my whole philosophy of the book. Okay. And, and okay. So when it comes to real estate, I want to talk about real estate. Matt and I, we talk about real estate a decent amount on the show. We're both, you know, small time mom and pop landlords here yeah. in Atlanta, have a small stable of rental properties. And we nice. are, we think it's something that, that more people should consider. And we're constantly like, you know, pushing people, hopefully gently <laughs> in that direction. <laughs> but um, yeah, how, how does real estate factor into the wealth building journey for you? Because it can be, you know, a bit daunting for some folks to think about buying a single family home or a duplex, yeah. renting it out. And, and, you know, that's kind of a part-time job in addition to your day job, maybe. So yeah, what are your favorite ways yeah. for folks to have some real estate exposure? 
So my absolute favorite way to build a rental property portfolio to generate passive income is to buy your primary residence, get neutral real estate, so you're going up and down with the market, live in it for three to five years, maybe longer, rent out that property, buy another property, live in it for three to five years, maybe longer, rent it out, and over a 40-year career, post high school or college, you can easily build a three to four uh, rental property portfolio which mm-hmm. will most likely pay for all your living expenses by the time you know, you're 50 or 60. And so that's the easiest way to do it. Another easy way to do it is obviously to buy public REITs or invest in private real estate funds. Uh, you don't need to borrow money. You can just invest as it is to gain that exposure as you're building your down payment for your primary residence or your rental uh, property portfolio. For me, real estate accounts for about 50% of my net worth, uh, excluding the value of my online business. And the reason why it's so high, whereas stocks is only about 30%, is because I'm focused on generating cash flow, so I don't have to go back to work. Hmm. And real estate is something that's more stable, generates higher yields. You are the king or the queen of your asset. You can do things to improve the asset, not only just remodeling and expanding, but hustling harder to find better tenants to pay you a closer to market rate. So it's a much more stable and attractive way to go to generate income, especially with the higher yields compared to stock dividend yields, because you don't wake up one day and see your property down 30 to 50%. You just continue right. to <laughs> you know, collect that rental income. Whereas with stocks, crypto, it's like, man, you know, like look at the tech stocks in 2022, they're down right. 30 to 80%. Sure. Yeah. Well, the, I guess the the biggest downside, right? To I mean, and we think people should save up. We encourage people to do this. Is kind of the the nest egg that you have to have on hand yeah. uh, for a down payment to buy that house. And um and and we want people to to challenge themselves to save more for a, a bigger down payment. But that that for a lot of people, that's why maybe people might go in the direction of real estate investment trusts, a publicly traded REITs, instead of a single family home or a multifamily home, right? Just because just because right. it's more accessible. Right. And so it's important. So it is daunting to come up with a 10 or 20 or 30% down payment on the value of a home. Right now, the median price in America is like 400 to 450,000. So you're talking mm-hmm. 80 to $90,000. Uh, but it's all about perspective too, because the first time home buyer in America is in their early 30s, let's say it's 32 to 34. So yeah, you know, when you're 22 or 20, yeah, you're, you don't got that money usually, right? But it's about perspective. So the average is, let's say, 34 first-time home buyer. Just try to beat the average. Maybe you can get long by age 30 or 31 or 28. It's all about being um, understanding where other people are in general with your age group. The one other thing about the down payment is, and I talk about this in the book, it's about um, how do you access the bank of mom and dad as well? So here in San Francisco, 20 to 30% of homes uh, were purchased in cash, and something like forty percent of first-time home buyers had the help of bank of mom and dad. Hmm. And in the past, right, like if you if you just bought a property on your own, you probably poo-poo the people who leveraged the bank of mom and dad. And that was <laughs> me too. I was, I was, and it's probably because hey, I was I jealous, didn't even have right? access to that. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm like jealous. I'm like you know, screw you. I had to I had to kill myself to save this. You know, I'm just jealous. Basically, you're just jealous, right? And I was just jealous. But the, if you think about it, if your parents are, you know. 50, 60, 70, they've been able to save and invest so much and take advantage of the massive bull market we've had. And as a parent now, I totally understand why every parent 
you know, loves their child and why they want everything to be best for their child. And if you're a responsible parent who has saved and invested over the past 30 to 40 years, you're probably going to die with too much money. And so it's probably better to help your children and loved ones while you're still alive than after you're dead. Because after you're dead, you know, your children might be 50 plus years old. So That's what's right. the point of that, right? I, I completely agree with that philosophy. And I think, yeah, there are way too many people hoping to leave some sort of massive inheritance when they could be using it in the here and now to help their kids and uh, and get to actually experience the joy on their kids' faces as they're able to maybe buy a house yeah. that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to. I mean, and, and yes, I totally believe that as a parent. Um, and the key is obviously not to brag about it if you're receiving all this help from bank of mom and dad, you know, it's to be humble, it's to be low key, it's to be stealth and to actually pay your parents back too. just even if they don't need the money, I'm sure they'll feel even more great that, wow, you know, my kids are such responsible individuals that they want to pay me back. Yeah. Well, when it comes to taking out a mortgage, it's interesting because you've been a proponent of adjustable rate mortgages where the interest rate, right, it can move around after a set period of time. Uh, So I guess I'm curious because interest rates have been on the rise lately. So people with adjustable rate mortgages might be shaking in their boots uh, a little bit. How do you feel about those, those products right now? Yeah. So I love this debate. I love this debate. And I've been encouraging people to take out adjustable rate mortgages since I started in 2009. And the reason why is because of perspective. First of all, interest rates have been coming down since the late 1980s. Literally, it's been a 40-year decline. And why is that? It's because the world has gotten smaller. The Federal Reserve Boards around the country, central banks around the country, have become tighter. They've become more coordinated. And we've we've been able to better manufacture inflation. Further, with a smaller world, you have input costs that have come down, right? So China, India, Vietnam, they're creating goods, uh, they're creating goods and exporting it to more developed countries and lowering the cost of goods, right? And this is only going to continue over time. Now, sure, we're going to have, you know, short-term spikes in inflation and therefore interest rates as we are experiencing right now. But right now is a special situation. You know, we've got war in Ukraine. Who would have thought, you know, Russia would invade Ukraine? We had the COVID pandemic, which hopefully is not going to last for more than five years. And we've had massive, massive amount of stimulus, which obviously percolates through the system. But think about it. If you are an arm holder, you're basically borrowing money at the shorter end of the yield curve. And when you borrow at the shorter end of the yield curve, the interest rate is lower. So... The spread between, let's say, an average 30-year fixed rate mortgage and, let's say, a 7-1 arm might be like 1.5%. So for seven years during that fixed rate period, you're saving 1.5% in terms of interest cost for a year. So you're only going to start losing seven years later after if the 30-year fixed rate mortgage or a new rate mortgage is 1.5% or higher. So -hmm. in other words... Let's say you did get an arm uh, in 2020. I'll just use my example. I got a 7-1 arm at 2.125% in 2020 because I bought wow. another home then, right? So am I quaking in my boots? I'm not quaking in my boots because it doesn't reset until 2027. And if it does reset, there's a limit to how much it can reset. It's not like endless reset, right? It's like 2% or 3% limit. And then it only resets at a limit a year after that. However, it's in my opinion 
that inflation will ultimately moderate and therefore interest rate. So I could easily see a scenario by 2023 where inflation starts moderating because there's demand destruction, right? The higher prices go, the less demand comes. And if inflation starts rolling over, let's say in August 15, 2022, there's going to be a decline in the bond yields and there's going to be a decline in mortgage rates. And you're right back to long term 40 year trend. And -hmm. here's the other thing. And sorry for blabbing around uh, so much. But the, no, you get it's uh, interesting. This is good. But the average person, the median home ownership duration was about four and a half years before the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Yeah. Today, the average home ownership duration is closer to 10 and a half, 11 years. Okay. Hmm. So it doesn't make sense to take out a 30 year fixed rate mortgage and pay a higher rate if you're only going to hold your property for 10 or 11 years or hold on to that mortgage for 10 or 11 years. Instead, it's a much more optimal financial decision to match your fixed rate duration to the length of ownership of your home. So if it's 10 years you plan to own it before you sell it or pay off the mortgage, then you should match it with a 10-1 arm. This is something I've kind of come around on because I used to be like, oh, no, no, you've got to do the 15-year fixed, you got to do the 30-year fixed. But that, like you said, that assumes that you're going to be there for the next 15 years, in the next right. 30 years. And one thing I've realized is that folks... They like to move. <laughs> there are opportunities that draw them to different cities or to different parts of the country or to clo- you know closer to family or just a yes. desire for a bigger or different house. Ex- yes, yeah, exactly. Life changes. So, I mean, your your wealth now will be different from your wealth twenty years from now or thirty mm-hmm. years from now. To be able to match your flexibility is actually much smarter. And so, yeah. and but oh, the reality yeah. is, ninety plus percent of uh, mortgages are thirty year fixed mortgages. It's something like five to seven percent are, are arms, and and I, I get a lot of pushback from that. But if you live your life and you observe other people living their lives, you will notice change in their their homes over time, yep. and you just have to do the math. If you ever have doubt, just run the scenarios on the break-even point because I'm I'm very happy I, I I'm holding an arm. And the other thing is, you're not stuck, right? Like let's say when my arm resets in 2027. I'm assuming I'll have some more cash. I can pay down principal when that time comes so that my payment is lower or I could sell the property. I can do a lot of other things. So I think the optionality of paying less and having flexibility is very valuable. That's true. Yeah. So let's talk about a different kind of debt, Sam, because you say that most of us uh, get into debt because we want to live a lifestyle that we don't deserve. (laughs) Uh, So can you explain what you mean by this? And how does debt factor into someone's ability to achieve financial independence? Yeah, if you think about how we consumed and purchased goods uh, hundreds of years ago, just 100 years ago, we paid mostly cash because the debt markets weren't built out yet. But very smart and wise people have been able to recognize that we're greedy. We want things now and we don't want to you know, we want to go straight to the corner office without putting in our dues. And that's just human nature, right? So we've created credit cards, payday loans, buy now, pay later to get people to get what they want without having to uh, be able to afford, you know, whatever they want in full value. And so I think getting into debt is something that um, people really need to get out of, especially it's consumer debt. If you have credit card debt, revolving credit card debt, the average interest rate is something like 17 to 18%, which is 7 to 8% higher than the average S&P 500 return over since 1926. And it is also higher than the average return uh, the illustrious Warren Buffett has been able to generate in his career. And he's one of the top 10 richest people of 
in the world. And so if you have this revolving credit card debt or consumer debt and you're buying things that don't have a chance of appreciating in value, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. So you have to ask yourself, how much do you really want? And you want to, do you want to get rich or do you want to make the lender get rich? That's the mindset. Mm-hmm. And the other thing um, I think you're asking about is, you know, debt and investing. So many of us exactly. ha- have debt, but we also want to invest. So I have a framework called the Financial Samurai Debt and Investment Ratio, which basically states if you have debt and you also want to invest, you should use that debt interest rate as a barometer for what percentage of your monthly cash flow you're going to use to pay down that debt. So in other words, if you have debt at 7%, you multiply that by 10 to get 70%. So you would take 70% of your monthly cash flow to pay down debt and then 30% to invest. So this way, you're always winning and you're always hedged. Now, after 10%, which is also the S&P 500 historical average return, you would allocate 100% of your cash flow to paying off that debt. Because you can't really, really launch if you're getting dragged down by 10 plus percent debt interest rates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and really, the, the only caveat to that, I'm sure you'd agree, is if you're getting some sort of company match on some of those 401k dollars, right? Where you might want to yeah. avoid paying off something that's like 8 or 9% interest rate in order to get that max that match out uh, before you start attacking that thing like gangbusters. Right. I mean, the company match is 100% return. So yes, definitely fulfill that 100% return uh, up to the match maximum and then start paying down that debt. I mean, you want to change your mindset to say, well, what is the return on my debt pay down? It's obviously the interest rate that you don't have to pay. Yeah. All right. Well, we want to talk about some career stuff with you, Sam, including, you know, one of the uh, coolest things I feel like I read this on Financial Samurai years ago. And uh, for some reason, it sticks in my mind more than anything else when it comes to like the content that you've put out. And it's about basically getting paid to walk away from your job. So we'll talk about uh, career advice that you've got and more right after this. All right. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000-plus five-star reviews. It tastes amazing. It's creamy and smooth with just water, and it comes in five delicious flavors. You can choose from chocolate, vanilla, chai, matcha, and coconut acai. Kachava is offering How to Money listeners 10% off for a limited time. I've been using Kachava in breakfast smoothies in the morning recently. It's just so nice to pack in a bunch of nutrients early in the a.m. in a way that's satisfying and energizing. So if you want to optimize your breakfast, your workout shake, be sure to check out Kachava. Just go to kachava.com. 
dot com slash how to money. That's spelled K A C H A V A and get ten percent off your first order. That's K A C H A V A dot com slash how to money. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. All right, we are back talking with Sam Dogan. And Sam, we're going to spend this last section talking a good bit about career advice. We're going to talk about how you were able to engineer a layoff. Before we dive into that, can you share the story actually about how you got your first job? Uh, you, you tell a pretty good story in the book about yeah scoring that, that first position yeah. there at Goldman Sachs and how it wasn't necessarily about grades. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> share, share with our listeners yeah. how, how that came to be. So it all uh, came about because there was a career fair in Washington, D.C. And Williamsburg, Virginia, where the College of William and Mary is, is about a two and a half hour drive south or north to Washington, D.C. And so I signed up for a career fair and Goldman Sachs said they wanted to, to see me. I was like, OK, sounds good. And so I woke up at 5.30 a.m. to get on a bus at 6 a.m. from Williamsburg to D.C. And nobody showed up. And supposedly 25 to 30 people signed up to go, go on this bus to go to D.C. And so after about 45 minutes, the driver said, you know what? Screw this. Nobody's showing up. Let's go change vehicles. So he drove me in the bus to some random shack in Williamsburg and out popped uh, a black Lincoln town car. And then so he drove me like a chauffeured limo for two and a half hours to the career fair. And I had a lot of series of tough interviews and then I was invited to Super Day where there were 12 interviews that one day. Wow. And I thought, all right, 12 <laughs> interviews, let's rock, let's do it. You know, you drink your caffeine and you go. And I felt great afterwards. And they said, oh, thanks for your interviews, let's come back. So all told, I ended up doing, I believe it was 55 interviews over seven rounds to get my first job in New York City. And the reason why it took so long is 
most likely because I was a poor candidate. You know, they couldn't fit me in the right bucket. You know, I was interviewing on the op, on the U.S. trading floor and then the options derivative desk. They made me read a thousand page book called Options as a Strategic Investment by, I think it was Nate McMillan. And then they asked me one question about what is a butterfly spread. So <laughs> that was, it was like the gauntlet. And so, but after, you know, like about the fourth round, you're like, okay, if they're not going to hire me, that's ridiculous. So I started feeling confident. And so, so I, they, they finally hired me. And then, then I had to go through the meat grinder again about getting into work at 5.30 and then realizing, is this what my life is going to be? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's fascinating, too, that uh, just your, basically, your pursuit of that job, your work ethic, your, your willingness to show up when, when nobody else did, it sets you apart in a way that maybe uh, you didn't go to one of the schools that they typically mine. No, right? not, it was not a target from. school at all. I mean, you got to show up, folks. Showing up, I mean, really is like 50 plus percent of the battle. You know, yeah. I, I promised myself in 2009, I would write, publish a new post three times a week for 10 years to see what would happen. Because I, I strongly felt 70% plus probability or greater that something good would happen if that were to come true. And so yeah. it's now it's been over 13 years and I'm just going to continue because if you can speak forever, you can write forever. There's so much interesting stuff to talk about every day. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things you talk about in the book, too, is you, you talk about how not many folks pick a place to live based on income potential. And and I love that you actually dedicated a whole chapter to it in your new book. But like salaries in coastal cities are often higher, but it's also much cheaper to live in like the American heartland. So so how does someone decide that that conundrum of where to live and, you know, when it comes to job opportunities? Yeah. Fortunately, now, I guess maybe it's a yeah. little bit easier with more work from home opportunities. But how do you think about that? So when you first start off, uh, you're learning instead of earning. And eventually you're going to start earning. But when you first start off, you don't have that much knowledge. You don't have that much experience by definition. So you should go where the job opportunity, the salary is the highest, the greatest. And even if that means living in a studio apartment with two other people in New York City because it's so expensive, that's where you should go. Again, we're talking about growing income versus saving money to generate wealth. Because look, so many people talk about, ah, oh, San Francisco and New York City, they're so expensive. How do people afford to live there? But it's, it's, it's economics, folks. You can't talk about you know, a $1.8 million median-priced home without talking about the median household income of the buyers of those homes, right? You have mm-hmm. to look at both sides of the equation. And because eventually, Eventually, your income, well, this is the hope, will, will skyrocket far beyond the cost of living. And this is what people don't tell you who've been able to generate a lot of wealth in the more expensive places. Yes, it costs a lot to live, to buy a home, to send your kids to school, whatever. But that income growth is huge. People are making $200,000 right out of school working at Facebook, Google, Apple. And by the time they're 30, they're making 350 to 400,000. And then if two people shack up, they're making 700 to $800,000. So suddenly, maybe that $1.8 million home on a $700,000 household income isn't that expensive. So it's, yeah. it's important to look at it that way. Now, I love the heartland because of the opportunity to invest as a real estate investor. Post-COVID, now we're seeing much more, uh, not segregation, spreading out of America, where you can work from home, you can go. So if you are in a relatively senior position, people trust you and they they know you're going to do your job, 
I would take advantage of uh, you know relocation closer to where your family is. Maybe you can save some money, have a better lifestyle. Um, that is that makes tons of sense. However, here's the one thing a lot of people, again, starting on the career twenties and thirties, need to be cautious about because out of sight is often out of mind. So That's if right. you are that person who wants to get promoted and paid and go places and you're early on your financial journey, if you're out out of sight physically in a satellite office, you might be missing out on those in-person opportunities. And when mm-hmm. it comes time to lay people off, it's so much easier to lay people off who you don't see often. So please yeah. be aware of that. Also, yeah. when it comes time to get a raise, like you probably aren't going to be the first person uh, when it comes to a promotion or raise on your manager's mind. Yeah, um, let, yeah. Imagine a scenario where there's a conference room, you know, it's, it's hybrid work from home, whatever. There's like five people in the room and then there's five people dialing in and you see them on TV. I will promise you that the relationships in that office are going to be stronger and the people who are dialing it in are probably not going to be called on as much to participate. And this is based on my talks. I've already given talks at Google, Yelp, some other large firms, and they're talking about this dynamic now. So it depends on where you are in your career too and how much you want it. Totally agree. Yeah. So Sam, can we talk about your experience negotiating a, uh, a severance package? Because you basically got paid handsomely to leave your job yeah. uh, when you're itching to leave anyway. Yeah. Share how that went down, please. Yeah. So one of my biggest failures as a financial writer and blogger is that I haven't been able to create a movement where if you're going to quit your job anyway or retire early anyway, you should try to negotiate a severance because what's the downside? You're going to leave anyway. Your two-week notice, you're just gone. Why not create a win-win scenario where you try to get a severance based on your good work, your good relationships, while you help the firm find your replacement and you train your replacement. Because I was a manager once and every manager will agree that losing people who've done decent work or even just so-so work is really painful, especially in this market, tight labor market, right? So my, my story is essentially in 2011, I was really burned out from finance. Financial crisis, you know, the correlation with effort and reward was no longer there. And so I really wanted to get the hell out of finance. You know, it was just enough, 12 years, enough. And I really liked Financial Samurai and just writing and connecting with people online. So after I got uh, a bagel bonus in 2011, I was like, you know what? This is really not worth it anymore. I got to find a way out. And I recognized from, you know, basically we were going through like three to five rounds of layoffs almost every year for a couple of years. I recognized that people were getting laid off with pretty decent severance packages, you know, based on two to three, they were getting paid two to, let's see, two to three weeks of pay for every year worked. And also they were getting their deferred cash and stock compensation. So in finance, the more senior you rise, the more of your compensation, your, your year-end bonus will be in deferred cash and stock. So it's like a golden handcuff. So you, you can never leave, right? Because there's no like retirement part of your pensions. And so if you quit your job in finance, just like if you quit your job in tech or any industry that provides deferred compensation, you tend to lose it all. And so after being at my one firm for 11 years, I had three years of deferred compensation. And generally I got paid 35% of my total compensation in deferred compensation. So in other words, I had like a year of deferred, 
uh, a year of income that I was just going to lose. And that was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And not only that, the company forced all employees to invest a portion of their bonus in the toxic assets of 2010, all these mortgage-backed securities, mm-hmm. to get that off the company balance sheet, and which was, I think, a really smart and wise move that we all shared the pain. But those investments in 2010 turned out to be multi-baggers. And if I left that, I would have lost that as well. And so the bottom line was, I was able to talk to my manager and talk to my HR person and say, hey, look, you know, these are tough times right now, and I've hired my replacement. I'll do whatever it takes to train him, make the transition as seamless as possible. If you can reward me with all my deferred compensation and a severance. And it took about a month of going back and forth. And ultimately, I convinced them to let me go and pay me out. So it's exactly the opposite of trying to convince someone to hire you and pay and promote you. <laughs> right. But it's actually the same because it's actually about understanding what the other side needs. The other side, you know, they, they would like to cut the salary and compensation of a director like myself, whose heart was no longer in it, to promote and pay less a younger person and then to move on. So I, yeah. it, was, it was a great win-win situation. And it's better. It's just easier emotionally to ask somebody who, who wants to leave mm-hmm. than to like find somebody who's like, yes, it's the hardest to thing. To, it's, it's one of the hardest things to lay people off. And if yeah. someone can volunteer to get laid off when you have to lay someone off anyway, it is a huge relief on the manager's uh, psyche. And so I really hope that more people, if they're going to leave their job anyway, you know, I think actually giving a two-week notice is kind of cruel. Because what are the chances that you know, your boss, your colleagues are going to find your replacement within two weeks that's good? And yeah. you know your colleagues are going to be left holding the bag where they got to do all the work. So my transition out took a couple months because I was trying to help make things smooth. Yeah, I like that. Well, and one of the other things you mentioned briefly in the book too is that there are additional benefits to getting laid off as opposed to quitting or getting fired, uh, whether it's governmental benefits um, yeah. and, and so uh, uh, COBRA, things like that. So those are important things to think about. But I guess I want to ask you about this, this situation because you, you were in a kind of a an interesting job that most people, they might think, okay, cool, maybe this works in high finance, but isn't that sort of an outlier scenario? Uh, Yeah, what would you say to that person and and can they uh, make this a reality in their kind of everyday sort of uh, work wherever wherever they're at? So I would say anybody who has uh, the courage to confront their manager or HR person to try to get laid off is an outlier. But I think we're all outliers if we wanna do something different or special. I would say everybody has the ability to negotiate a severance because everybody has emotions. Everybody has needs. Paying a severance is voluntary. The WARN Act pay, which a lot of people confuse with a severance, is actually law. If you're a big company, you have to give severance in the form of WARN Act pay, which is mandatory one to three months of pay. A severance is voluntary. So... Let's just put, uh, I don't know, my, myself as an example. I have a hardworking employee. I'm a private company. I don't have to pay a severance. Let's say I have a, a great employee, five years, just added so much value, so, you know, always nice, great, friendly to work with, easy. And they say, Sam, you know, I, I got to move on. I got another opportunity. You know, thanks so much. Is there anything I can do, um, you know, maybe get a severance or something? It's like a going away gift. If I like that person and they try to help me find their replacement, I'm happily giving them a severance. Because if you think about it from a, a corporation's point of view, 
A severance, the amount is not huge in terms of the overall earnings, but the goodwill is huge. It's about treating mm. people well so yeah. that it can attract more people in the future. If you're like a big employee, one of the biggest, actually for all companies, one of the biggest fears is gaining a bad reputation as a bad place to work, as a place where they don't treat their employees with respect. That's disaster with social media and everything. You know, I mean, if I want it, I can blow people up left and right with my platform, right? I mean, that's you don't want to do that. But frankly, anybody can do that uh, right now. So it's really about creating um, that that collegiate atmosphere, collegial atmosphere, and creating win-win situations. And anybody can do it in any kind of job setting. It might not yep. be a specifically like a severance. I mean, it could be. You know what? You can. How about you work four hours a day for the next three months? That's kind of like getting double pay for three months. Or how yeah. about just come in two days a week and, you know, just do hybrid two days a week and then take Friday off. You get three day weekend every every weekend for one year. That's kind yeah. of like a severance because it's about creating matching a scenario of demand and supply as well. Yeah, it's not black or white. There are a lot of options out there. It's not folks. black or white. Can, Everything, every problem thing. is there. There is a solution. There's a more optimal solution where both sides can win. And that's what I encourage people to do is always think about the other side so you can make a better situation for yourself. Totally. Yeah. Make it win win for, for both parties involved. Mm-hmm. With all this talk about severance, Sam, did you happen to watch the uh, the TV show severance on Apple TV? Yeah, I've watched uh, the first episode, so I'm actually going to watch more, but I got to sign up you for You and Apple Joel TV. both. <laughs> uh, so you all have got to get <laughs> past that first I episode because it gets so good. And uh, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's going to get good. I'm not I just sick of that finished. show. I just finished uh, Peaky Blinders season six, okay. so I, I got to do the uh, severance. <laughs> well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us, man. Where, where can folks uh, learn more about you? Well, obviously at financialsamurai.com. I'm going to go ahead and say it. But where can folks learn more about your book specifically? Uh, you can buy Buy This, Not That, How to Spend Your Way to Wealth and Freedom anywhere that they sell books. Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Powell's Books, Indie Books, and at your bookstore. Uh, it's coming out July 19th. I think that's it's going to be the best book. And obviously, I'm biased because uh, <laughs> it not only talks about helping you achieve financial freedom based on real life experience and examples, but it really tackles a lot of life's biggest dilemmas. What's the point of money, right? It's to live a better life and to look back with no regret. So I really think you guys will love it. Yeah. No, well, we enjoyed reading it, Sam. And yeah, we think How to Money listeners are going to love it too. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us. We appreciate it, man. And uh, yeah, hope to talk to you soon. Thanks so much, guys. I really feel honored that you have me on. Well, Sam, we are honored to have had you on the show today. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, Joel, man, great conversation here with the financial samurai, the man himself. Sam was one of the OG uh, he, he was just on the space. He was on the scene very early on when it came to folks who were writing about personal finance, specifically on you know about the different ways that you can achieve some sense of financial freedom. So mm-hmm. it was really cool to have him on today. But uh, yeah, what were your? Did you have a, a big takeaway from this episode? I think maybe I know there's a lot of great stuff for sure, and I love w- the way Sam talks about engineering a layoff, mm-hmm. and I just think that's like such beneficial advice for so many people who are interested in changing careers or just tired of their job and want something different and they want maybe a little bit of peace out money to to help them navigate uh, the, those few months in between finding something else. But I think, I don't know, the, the main thing that uh, that stuck out to me talking to him was when he said, investing 
is a psychological mind bender. Hmm. And he said, stay calm. Um, and basically uh, what he said was that the f- that fear is worse than the reality itself. Yep. And I think it's true. Yep. I think it's very true that we get fearful and we let that fear override the reality of the situation. Um, we, we, we let our emotions overly influence our behavior. So I think, yeah, staying calm, <laughs> staying reasonable in a time where everyone else is running around like chickens with their, with their heads cut off, I think is, is sage advice. And it's something that we should all be following during this time. There is no need to look at your account balance every day or every week. Mm-hmm. There's no need to read the headlines. And the calmer you can stay in the midst of chaos, the more wealth you're going to be able to build. That's right. Yeah, you just said it. Fear is bigger than the actual reality. And so I'll parlay that into negotiating that severance. And one of the things that stuck out to me was that in reality for a business, we're not talking about a large amount of money in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, when you're taking the the zoomed out big picture look at things, but the amount of goodwill that you are fostering by working with your boss or your manager or your employer to make sure that they're not the ones left holding the bag because a lot of times it's not it's, it's less about the money and it's more about the work. Yeah. It's more about the different tasks. It's more about the, the client relations that you have. And if you are able to make that transition stretched out over a period of time, or if there are just some ways that you can make that happen more smoothly, like he said, while you train the new person who's going to be taking over your role, that is worth the money. And that yeah. is something that a manager is willing to pay for. And so I, I mentioned that because you're, you're talking about fear. And I think a lot of times folks are afraid to step out and, and do something like that. But he positioned it. It where feels presumptuous. It feels presumptuous. Think, or but, it feels like... Or it feels well, like maybe mean or something like that. But what he was saying is that it, it, it seems more rude to give a two weeks notice where you're just like, all right. Because that seems like the clean when professional you frame thing it like to that, do. that, it makes complete sense that that yep. is actually maybe a better way to go about it. And I, I just want to say that I was able to do this exact same thing. You like were. I, I read <laughs> what Sam wrote on this and I was like, dang it, that makes a whole lot of sense. And I was like looking to to leave, but there was a perfect outlet to say, what if I stick around for a little bit longer? And I help with this transition. And ultimately, like I see that you're actually trying to get rid of people. Get rid of me. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was- and Your employer was better off for it though exactly. because you were to stick around. That's right. And I th- I, yeah, I think a lot of times folks see the two week notice thing as like, okay, that's just how you do it. There's a reason why everybody remembers that. I don't know. It's got a good marketing uh, <laughs> platform. Like for whatever reason that is stuck in our minds as what you're supposed to do. But in reality, maybe there are some alternatives where everybody is able to win, where everybody's going to come out uh, a little more ahead. Mm-hmm. But, like but yeah, that was my big takeaway. Uh, foster that goodwill with with your employer. Don't be afraid to start having some of those conversations. But uh, let's get back to the beer that you and I enjoyed during this episode. We both enjoyed a daily serving. And this is a tropical punch Berliner Weiss. This is by Trillium. I didn't know that Trillium makes Berliner Weisses. I, I think most of the beers I've ever had by them have been IPAs. And so this is a quite a surprise to, to be able to enjoy something so delicious that I'm not used to these guys making. But uh, what were your thoughts on it? I think it? we've had like a coffee style from them before too. But, oh, but that's right. Everything we've had from them has everything been else. New in Fuego. It's been yeah. incredible. Yeah. And, and and so this one was no exception. It, it I, To me, if this could count as my serving of daily fruit, I would drink it every day. <laughs> because it is just like it's bursting at the seams with fruit flavor and so just incredibly ju- juicy luxurious amounts of fruit in this I would say like they must have used a ton yeah. because the fruit vibes come forward in a big way but yeah again like everything Trillium does I'm impressed it's <laughs> so good right 
And so, the, so, I mean, the flavors, they don't like bash you over the head. Right? Yeah. It's, it's not like this perfumey kind of over the top fruit flavor. It's 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 real. Like you can tell that there, there, there is real fruit in here. And I, like you said, I think that's why they called it daily serving <laughs> because it truly is real fruit in this beer. Honestly, it kind of reminds me of Humble Forger because they do a really good job of incorporating a lot of that fruit flavor without it feeling like this perfumey yeah. artificial fruitiness. Um, and so I think Trillium has done an incredible job. And uh, this was another beer that was sent to us, by the way, by Sean. He is up there in Boston, I'm pretty sure. And so for him, this is maybe this is a daily thing. For this him. might be his daily serving <laughs> to of to beer. To be able to enjoy something this delicious. I but, am jealous. But Sean, thank you so much for sending this one our way. Yeah, seriously, thanks, Sean. We appreciate it. By the way, Matt, we should announce how to enter the book giveaway. Oh, we almost forgot. That you mentioned at the uh, beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. We are giving away five copies of Sam's new book, Buy This, Not That. And all you got to do is be a How to Money newsletter subscriber. That's right. If you are already subscribed, you realize how glorious it is and <laughs> you are already entered that's right uh, but if you have not yet subscribed you should and it's free and you'll get entered to win one of these five copies and we will mention the the winners in next week's newsletter a week from tomorrow that's right and you can sign up for that newsletter at howtomoney.com forward slash newsletter i love how we got that url just nailed right <laughs> <laughs> we got it uh all right man that's gonna be it for this episode buddy until next time best friends out best friends out of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details it's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilbur Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.